This is Dana McClendon, and this is Ready for Trial. I'm going to pull back the curtain for a moment. When I started this podcast, I did not know who my guests would be, and I did not know what I would talk about with them. Over the course of about 13 episodes, I've discovered that the best thing to do is to probably talk to the guest about what makes the guest interesting or unique. To that end, my guest today is Tony Turnbow, and there is not a lot of talking about law in today's episode. Tony has become a preeminent historian on the history of the Natchez Trace and Meriwether Lewis, and as you'll hear in this episode, a slice at least of Andrew Jackson's life. Uh, in particular, the period of time in Andrew Jackson's life immediately before the Battle of New Orleans during the War of 1812. If you are a history buff, get comfortable, get yourself a cold drink or a warm one, settle in because during this episode, you are going to hear things about Andrew Jackson, Meriwether Lewis, Aaron Burr, and others that I promise you, you did not know before now. Um, my thanks to Tony Turnbow. Um, this is cool. So here you go. So my guest today is Tony Turnbow. Tony is a lawyer practicing in Franklin, Tennessee. Has been for a while. I'll ask you in a minute how long, but it's been a while. As I told Joe Ball when I interviewed him, I divide, um, I divide people into two groups. Those were here when I, those who were here when I got here, and those who were not. And you are in the group of people that were here when I got here, and that number is uh, shrinking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the number of people who who were not here when I got here grows daily. Right. Um, so. Uh, uh, Tony, among other things, um, is, I, I, I don't know, uh, I don't think you're an amateur historian. You're a historian. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say I'm a historian. Okay. And definitely an author. So we're going to talk about that a good bit. But let's get some background. Thank you for coming on, Tony. Thanks, Tony. Um, so uh, you've been practicing in this office, in this building, I'm, I'm going to say for most of my life, how long, when did you come, when did you start practicing law and when did you arrive in this building? I started practicing law in 1984, okay. 35, now going on 36 years ago. Okay. Uh, but I arrived in this building several years earlier. <laughs> okay. And for, uh, and for, since you're not able to see this, we are sitting in uh, a, an antebellum home that was here at the time of the Battle of Franklin right. that served as a, a hospital after right. the battle. Um, and uh, then many, obviously many years later, became the home of the King family, mm -hmm. David King, who practiced law in this building after moving his family out. And you were here then, I guess. Yeah, I, I actually came to Franklin um, in the late 1970s to clerk in the DA's office. And that's how I met David. And okay. That's how I came to this building. All right. So... Um, where and when did you go to law school? Went to law school in 1981, and so I actually clerked before I went to law school. It was I became a lawyer through a, a series of misunderstandings. <laughs> <laughs> so All I, right. I originally wanted to go to Vanderbilt. I wanted to go in maybe the corporate world, and I needed a letter of recommendation from someone who had been to Vanderbilt. That's what I was told. And so I sought out Landis Turner, who was a lawyer, down in Lewis County, I knew Landis, he went to Vanderbilt. And I think Landis misunderstood why I was there. He thought I wanted to become a lawyer. And so he said, well, let me show you what I do. And he took me around his office and he showed me the library like this one with the books. And he said, you know, I do the research, I pull these books and I do the research if someone has an interesting question. And then I come up with an opinion and they'll fight about it. And I thought, well, that, that sounds like a pretty interesting way to spend your time during the day. <laughs> I, think, I think I might be able to, to manage that. 
And so that kind of generated the interest. Now, had you grown up down there? Where did you? In Lewis did, County, yes. You grew up in Lewis County, yeah. okay. Um, and I didn't recognize it at the time, but we played lots of board games when I was a kid. And I was that uh, aggravating kid that always pulled out the rule book. Oh. You know, whenever there was a fight, and I wanted to pull out the rules, and I wanted, yeah. I wanted to interpret and fight, fight over the rules. Here it is game. on page four, rule 17. Exactly. It says this, and... Uh, Never so, mind that no one had ever done it that way. The right. whole family had an understanding that the rule was something else. Exactly, and no one cared what the rules were. <laughs> okay. They just knew how they wanted so to So you were a teetotaler for rules back then? Back then. I should have known I was going to become a lawyer okay. and, and be able to aggravate adults like I did as a kid. Um, and so I went to Vanderbilt, and a good friend of ours was working in the clerk's office down in Lewis County. And... Uh, he mentioned something about me wanting to go to law school to Elmer Davies, who was then district attorney. Later judge. And later judge. And Elmer misunderstood and thought that I was already in law school. Oh. And so he offered me a job clerking in the DA's office. And I'll never <laughs> forget going to him for the interview. And he's ready so to you got a job that really should have been, that really was appropriate for someone who was either in law school or out. Exactly. And, knew you, been, and you were neither. Right. Okay. Right. Um, but Elmer decided since I was already there, he was already committed to it, he would go ahead and hire me for the summer. And, and actually, Joe Baugh, you mentioned Joe. Joe was working for Elmer at the time. And Joe Baugh taught me, taught me how to do research and how to write briefs. And it was a great experience for someone who wanted to go to law school. Uh, yeah. I, I got a chance to see what happened. That's the way they used to do it. Yeah. You read, used to read, read used to, like, to become a lawyer once upon a time, you went to a lawyer's office and read the law. That's right. Read letters. That's right. And you worked for a lawyer like Elmer, and he told you what to do. And then and then he would finally say, he's good. He's That's good right. to go. Yeah, That's how he became it. a lawyer. Yeah, they would spend lots of time copying briefs, copying mm -hmm. an older lawyer's briefs into a, a current case, and that's how they learned the law. So this is in the, uh, you said late 70s? Late 70s, yeah. All right, and then finally everybody was like, well, I guess you should go to law school now. Right. So where'd exactly. you go? Went to the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Okay. All right. And you, then you come back home, basically. Came back home. And I'll, how did you start? Is that when you got here to this building? That's when I got to this building. I was, I was in law school trying to decide where I wanted to practice. And I, I couldn't really decide. I love the Nashville area. I knew I wanted to come back to this general area. And I enjoyed Franklin. I, I had a good experience here. And I remember one Sunday afternoon, I was taking a break from studying. And I turned on the television, and there was... Um, they were playing To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay. And I remember watching that. And of course, I was supposed to be thinking about justice and the, the greater themes. But I thought about this southern town that seemed to have this charm. This idyllic charm. I idyllic charm. And On I the thought, surface. Yeah. And I thought, that's Franklin. You know, I remember that's exactly like it was or how I perceived it when I was clerking there. I said, that's where I want to go back to work, Franklin. Okay. So here you are. Here so you, who was here when you got here? So I came back in... Um, I met David when I was David, clerking, King. David King when I was clerking for the DA's office, because David had agreed to house the bar library in this building, and then it was the bar library, uh, was the Williams County Bar Library. It didn't have enough books to fill this room at the time, and David agreed to put them here. So they gave him good access, you know, for <laughs> <laughs> research. He didn't have to buy his own books. This is back when books were more than props. That's right. Um, and so I would come to David's office to do legal research and got to know him, and he was a nice guy. Now, who was here? Was Ernie here then? Not, not when I clerked at the DA's office. Okay. So, but when I came back after law school, then David had formed a partnership with Dave Alexander. The famous Dave the fam Alexander. The famous Alexander and, uh, and Ernie Williams. You know, and I found, I'm maybe the youngest lawyer to have practiced with 
Dave, Dave Alexander. Yeah, probably uh, so. But when I started, almost every lawyer in Franklin had practiced with Dave Alexander. At, at one time point. or another. That's correct. And so the it's interesting because I've been practicing in Franklin since like 93. Um, and so I know, practiced with, opposite, or in front of, a lot of the people whose names are coming up in these interviews. But I didn't know, I didn't necessarily know like how the whole web got put together. So like I'm finding the the, the like lineage now <laughs> of like 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 a famous football or basketball coach. Like Dave Alexander mm -hmm. begets begets Joe Ball, uh, Hartzog, Silva. Uh, like yeah. and so like every every lawyer over sixty in this mm -hmm. town uh, can probably trace back to to Dave Alexander <laughs> That's true. and Elmer Davies. That's true. Okay. And it's very common now to say, well, Mr. Dave used to say. Right. Uh, but no, but now. Yeah, the younger lawyers have, they no, have idea no idea who that is. Yeah. Mr. yeah. But, but uh, his, his teachings are still living on, as it was back in the old now, days. Now, I never met Mr. Dave, but I've heard a lot of Mr. Dave stories. Yeah. There are lots of Mr. Dave stories. <laughs> yes. Uh, many of them sitting around going out to Shoney's, I guess. Yeah. He liked to do that. Yeah. Okay. So you, pro you start practicing here in the mid-80s. Right. All right. What is the practice of law like in Franklin, Tennessee? in the mid eighties. It was very different than today. I'm sure. It was, it was much more relaxed. Um, in fact, I think there was one restaurant downtown, which was Lila's uh, Deli, Lila's Deli or Lila's Sandwich Shop. And that's where all the lawyers would go to lunch um, midday. Um, and there's probably what, two dozen lawyers? Maybe two dozen lawyers. Uh, it was a very different time because one lawyer would offer to take the judge to lunch. And even if he was arguing the case before him, that was considered perfectly appropriate at the time. <laughs> um, and I remember Don Young being there. You, you oh, I Don, remember. Oh, yeah. Every, I, I don't want to disrespect Don, but one of my favorite things about Don was that every time I saw Don, he had a dirty joke he'd never yet told me. Yeah. <laughs> every well, Don, day. Don, Don was the entertainer at Lila's at lunchtime. <laughs> And I always tried to and sit. And he was that way until the end. Yeah. And I always tried to sit next to Don so he wouldn't talk about me behind my back <laughs> when I was there in Lila's. And it worked as far as I know. Yeah. Those were the days when, when you'd see Don Young uh, stroll over from his office, settle three general sessions court cases and be done for the day. Right. That was, that was, he, he had the, he was a master of, of volume, uh, of running, uh, volume cases through yeah. the courthouse quickly. Yeah. All right. So, so it was much more relaxed and it was a different time. Yeah. So you've been literally in that office. Did, were you ever upstairs here? I was never upstairs. I was in this, this room we're in today. Our conference room was my first office. Okay. And then, uh, then I moved over. But that was decades ago. Yes. And I know you're, you're sort of change, change averse. I am. So, so. lots of things are exactly where they were 25, 30 years ago. I, you know, I, okay. So I rented a space upstairs here, um, but it's now been almost 10 years since I left. Mm -hmm. And as I sit here and look around, nothing's different. Yeah. Uh, nothing. Nothing is different. <laughs> so good job. Thank you. Yay. You, um, all right. Now, along the way, uh, you have developed a passion for, um, for history, and that history has focused a lot on the, the Natchez Trace and the people who ran up and down it. Right. 
Um, I know you have a long history of investigating and, re and uh, looking at the Meriwether Lewis yes. matter. Um, we can get into that. Uh, and then somehow that segued into Andrew Jackson. That's the subject of your book. So which one of those you want to tackle first, Meriwether Lewis or Andrew Jackson? Uh, well, the, the book, of course, is more important. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's your interview, man. That's right. Um, but I don't so, care how long it takes. So. Yeah. I was researching the, the death of Meriwether Lewis, which I have been, as you know, for, for a few decades now. And I was working as um, volunteering as president of the Natchez Trace Parkway Association. That's the friends group for the Natchez Trace. Okay. And I've worked with that, that organization for more than 30 years. And I had this love of history, this, this interest in answering questions about history. By the way, if, if you're listening to this podcast and you live anywhere in the Nashville area and you haven't been down the trace to the, to the burial place mm -hmm. of Meriwether Lewis, you should read about it and go. Yes. Because Meriwether Lewis probably... Everybody knows Lewis and Clark, the expedition, blah, blah, blah. Okay, fine. You've, you've heard that story somewhere along the way. If you haven't really read what those men did, mm -hmm. it's beyond astonishing uh, what they did. And um, the, the, tr the, the end of Meriwether Lewis's life, whether it's suicide or murder, is, is tragic and terribly unfortunate for a man who History's been fairly kind to him, I think. But like at the end, he wasn't he on his way back to Washington to explain some expenses that had been called into question. That that's correct. Like he he and Clark go across the country, at the time with no map and no idea where they were going, um, in search of a river passage, mm -hmm. uh, and Jefferson basically bankrolls them with just send just send the IOUs home, right? Yeah. So they do. And he was essentially the James Bond of his era. Yeah, he was given this mission. You know, money's no object. Right, just figure it out, yeah. and and tell anyone along the way that Thomas Jefferson sent you, and we'll pay your bill. Right, and he was really a spy. He was going there supposedly for scientific information, but the real purpose was to obtain a secret military passage to march troops to the Pacific. Yeah, preferably by water. But right, okay. So they go, they come back, and Lewis gets involved in a slew of crazy investments and and well i mean i i'm gonna say that you don't have to agree but like no. he gets he gets involved in after he's he's the most famous man in the country for mm -hmm. a while and he he never loses his wanderlust he gets involved in a few more um let's say um explorations some of them funded like private public private partnerships whatever but it but there's a change in administration and some political people come in and start to call him on the carpet and say, you better show up here and explain yourself for some well, of these notes that he's sent home from his trip to pay for things. Yeah, well, what really happened was his secretary turned on him. Okay. Lewis, Lewis was given the position of governor of the Upper Louisiana Territory, which is all the land that we acquired you know, from, from France, west of the Mississippi, north of New Orleans, the, the southern Louisiana area and very powerful position. Uh, and he was delayed in going to St. Louis where he would serve as governor. And so he appointed Frederick Bates to be his secretary to take care of things until he got there. And Bates discovered that he would prefer to be governor. The governor. The right. governor. So and he starts so, undermining. Exactly. Okay. Every, every 
chance he had, he undermined Meriwether Lewis. And when Lewis got there, he had turned everyone on Meriwether Lewis. He, okay. he already laid all the traps for him. And, and Lewis... Which sent, is a remarkable fall. Yeah. Right? I mean, like, this is like, imagine if Neil Armstrong comes home from the moon mm -hmm. and gets called on the carpet for, like, putting the flag up wrong or something. I mean, like, it's, it's, a, it's an yeah. amazing turn of fate. Well, Lewis had one, one mission left over from the expedition. He had to return the Mandan chief to his homeland. And they had to get him there going through tribes that were tried to kill the Mandan chief. And so it was a, they tried several times, and they wanted to make sure the Mandan chief did not get killed on the way back. And so Lewis put together this ex expedition to go take the Mandan chief back. At the same time, he sent his younger brother to scout out land for a fur trade which was then a way that John Jacob Astor's and other got very, very wealthy. Uh, and so Frederick Bates took the opportunity to say, well, you're actually sending this expedition for your own private Yeah, gain, your enrichment. Okay. Your own enrichment. And then you're asking the government to reimburse you. And for that's what expenses. I was talking yeah. about, where there's like this, I'm not saying it was questionable. I'm just saying at the time, people pointed at it and right. said, you can't do that. Even right. if you're Meriwether Lewis, you can't do that. Right. And eventually the government did reimburse, if, after Lewis died, they reimbursed his estate. Right. Showing that there really wasn't. But he was, so he had been basically summoned to explain himself by what the Adams administration, was it, what administration was it? Hold, hold Madison. It? Madison. Madison. Madison yeah. comes to power and says, I don't care who you are. Uh, you have some questions to answer, essentially. Well, basically, they said, we're not going to pay you. Right. So you have to come up here and explain. Yeah, because Lewis had, had bought the land, as you mentioned. He had all of these debts that, at, at that time, the, the government did not fund itself. Whoever was selected as governor had to pay all these expenses themselves out of their own pocket. And then they submitted bills to the government for reimbursement. Right. When the government was always broke. And, yeah, always broke. And so when the government said, we're not going to pay you, all the creditors came knocking at Lewis's door, and right. he had to go to Washington. Right. So he's to, he's on his way from St. From Louis. Louis to yeah. Washington yeah. to exp basically to to clear his name, right, and recover the reimbursement, right, and, and set the record straight and publish his journals, for right. Which which I mean, like they had started to trickle out, right? Like they yeah. Some of the men had published their own yeah. first. So while he's on that trip, this you couldn't get on a plane. And fly, mm -hmm. so he's he's going by river largely. Yeah, and he winds up. Well, it gets it gets strange before then. Right. He the get, boat the boat's going down supposedly to New Orleans. He'll get on a ship and go to Washington, and as he's as he's going down the Mississippi River by what's now Memphis, then Port Pickering, the boat is stopped. Lewis is arrested, and someone says that Lewis had tried to kill himself. And so they, they arrest him, they hold him there. And they the haul floor. him away to, for his own good. For his own good, yeah. And he winds up on the Natchez Trace yep. with, I guess there are reports at the time that he's suicidal and people have subsequently speculated he's manic. Right. And he winds up on land, now on his way across the land route mm -hmm. to Washington maybe. Yeah, because the, Chickas the Chickasaw agent shows up offers to take Lewis to, to Nashville. He's going that far, and he'll be Lewis's bodyguard across land to Nashville. And they wind up on the trace, mm -hmm. and undoubtedly Lewis winds up with two bullet holes. And a cutthroat, <laughs> and wounds on his hands and legs. Okay, and it's ruled a suicide at right. the time. Right, And 
in fairness, a lot of people who were Lewis's friends did not jump up and down and say it wasn't at the time, right? Like okay. one of the things that's been leveled against the murder charge mm -hmm. is that, well, Thomas Jefferson would have said this wasn't a suicide or Lewis's close compatriots would have would have come out in his defense if they thought it was foul play. But they, and, weren't, but they weren't there. Okay, so, but we what we do know is that in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. far, far away, in the middle of nowhere, essentially, uh, he winds up with um, a series of wounds yep. and, and injuries that are difficult to reconcile with, uh, with suicide. Fair and, enough? Fair enough. And his money is missing. Okay, so it's, okay. And, and he dies in an area known for robbery and murder. Yeah, the Natchez Trace was, was notorious yeah. for that. So if I give a talk about this and there's a police officer in the audience, and I say, if you find a body in an area known for robbery and murder, the money is missing, and there are multiple wounds on the body, is your first thought suicide? Right. And they always laugh. Now, so, okay, so you fall in the murder camp. I think that's what the evidence okay. tends to indicate. All right. yes. And there's a lot of people who are like, that's crazy, that, yeah. that no such thing, right? Yeah. Um, what is the, all right, so what is the best reason that people say, that people continue to insist that this was a suicide? I mean, what's the, well, Why are there people invested in the suicide story? Because that was the first story. The agent that I told you about, the Chickasaw agent, supposedly wrote a letter. That's the first letter that was sent out as to what happened to Thomas Jefferson saying Lewis had taken his own life. One of the things I was able to prove was that that letter was a forgery. Now, when you say you've proved it, yeah. and I want to get into this a little bit, you have probably spent more time than anyone I know, or maybe ever will know, in the basement of buildings mm -hmm in files that no one has seen for a hundred years. Mm -hmm. Fair enough? That's true. Okay, so when you say that one of the things you were able to prove, and we're gonna, and I promise you, we're gonna get to Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson soon, <laughs> because you did more of that still right. to write the Andrew Jackson book. But let's finish up this Meriwether Lewis story. So 30 years, your, your uh, I don't wanna say hobby, but your, uh, 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 an interest of yours that it's you a spend, it's a nagging question all right what so you have you have yeah. decades of interest mm -hmm. and hours in this inquiry yeah and you say one of the things you're able to prove was this 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 letter that starts the suicide story rolling turns out to be a forgery now where where do you find this what is the story behind that i was in the williamson county archives and i thought there's got to be more information out there that we've just not found. And I knew the Chickasaw agent had a farm in Williamson County on Duck River because Lewis's brother came back to retrieve his pistols that the agent stole when Lewis died at Duck River. And I'll, I'll never forget the day I was sitting there at the archives going through the microfilm of the county records. And these are these are photographs reduced to microfiche of, of papers that were handwritten in, in, in 1809. Yeah, 200 years ago. Yeah, and and so I'm sitting there and wondering, well, what was, what was James Neely? That was the Chickasaw agent. What was he doing on the day that Lewis died? And I'll never forget, I, I pulled up that frame and I could feel the, the hair on the back of my neck stand out when I saw October 10th, 1809, that's the day he said Lewis died, there was James Neely and he was in Franklin in court being tried by a jury. For what? For a debt. And so he couldn't have been with Lewis. He couldn't have been with Lewis. 
So at <laughs> best, at that point, his account is is his his hearsay story of something that someone told him. At best. At, at best, yes. Or it could be just and, be complete and, fabrication. And everyone had always questioned the the signature on the letter to Jefferson because. Uh, Neely always signed his name with just the first letter, J. Neely. So on the face of this letter that is the origin of the suicide story, there's questions. Yeah. But then and Tony knows. Turnbow, <clears throat> well, 200 years later, <laughs> for the first time, wonders where Neely is on the day of the death Yeah. and goes and finds the document in the Williamson County archives. And, and then the letter shows J. Neely. And... and Everybody else questions. Well, why didn't that set? Why why was it signed James Neely rather than Jay Neely? And about a month later, I was looking in the National Archives, and I found another letter by the real James Neely, signed Jay Neely, uh, on the same date as the as the letter to Jefferson, which was supposedly written from Nashville, but this letter was written from the Chickasaw Agency, 150 miles away. So what that proved was that Neely did not write the letter to Thomas Jefferson because he was actually 150 miles from Nashville. So he wasn't that, at the scene of the death, and, on the day of the death. Right. And on the same day that this suicide, this well, letter is written, he's actually 150 miles away writing a completely separate letter to the same man. Well, to, to someone else. But the to same, someone else. Yeah, to the War Department. Um, so he didn't write the letter to Thomas Jefferson. So if you take that letter out, where does the suicide story stand? Then all you have is, the, what, what evidence do you have? And there's that, very that, little evidence. So like... Okay. And, and, you know, the evidence is supposedly Lewis died from multiple wounds. But two of them are bullet wounds. Bullet wounds. One in the head, And right? it's very difficult. Yeah, one in the head. Very difficult to, to load. Yeah. And, and doctors will say someone who shoots themselves in the head, if that's the first shot, he's not going to do anything else. Um, and there are lots of other things that make it suspicious. So all of this just kind of adds to the intrigue about what happened to Meriwether Lewis. Now... I don't know this part of the story, but I understand that there was an effort to exhume him. Right. Whatever happened with that? Uh, that was probably 15, 20 years ago. The, the federal government, the Park Service said, no, we're not going to allow you. Because he's actually buried on the trace. Right. Um, where he died, they, they buried him near Grinder Stand where he died. And there's a significant marker there now. I assume that wasn't there to begin Yeah, the monument was placed there in 1840, 1848 by the state of Tennessee. So 30 years after his death. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so uh, Dr. Jim Stars from the Georgetown University wanted to exhume the body back in the late 1990s. And he actually persuaded, we go back to Joe Baugh, uh, who was then district attorney, to have a coroner's inquest. At that time, they couldn't prove that there ever was a, an inquest over the body of Lewis, and so he said, let's have an official investigation into the death of Mary Lewis. Now, as I recall, Lewis's ancestors get involved. Right, the family gets involved. They want to see... They want to know. ...an answer to it. They, whether it's murder or suicide, they don't care. They just want an answer. Um, and so Joe convenes a, a coroner's inquest down in Lewis County, and I get the chance to be the alternate juror on that inquest, you know, which is a great <laughs> opportunity to see this evidence wow, being presented. Okay. And, um, you know, they actually did test firing, you know, with, um, a, musket with, a, with a musket. And one of the things they pointed out was that at that time, uh, if, if you test fire from a, close from a close range, there will be a powder burn on whatever cloth the person is Which wearing. might be there even now. Even now. But there was no, no mention of a powder burn. Now, no one who saw Lewis's body ever mentioned the powder burn. 
So that suggested maybe the weapon was fired from uh, farther range. He was never exhumed, right? He, he was never exhumed. Okay. Um, so we're st we're so what we're left with is the question. The family still wants to exhume him. The Park Service still says no. And, that's, and what's I mean, the Park Service just has a blanket policy against digging people up, or what? They they well they want to have that. They say the Antiquities Act requires them to preserve cultural artifacts, and they say Lewis's body is a cultural artifact. And a federal judge agreed with them. So that that's, that's kind the of end of that. That's that's the end. But the administration, whoever the current administration is, could always agree to say yes. Hmm. And so okay, so uh, the Meriwether Lewis mystery is. Uh, is more complicated than it was. Yeah, there are more questions. Right. Uh, and maybe I, my hope is that there is an answer somewhere out there. There is a story that there actually, there actually was a coroner's inquest at the time, and the foreman of the, uh, the jury kept a journal of the proceedings in his pocket. He wasn't required to, it wasn't an official journal, but he kept that journal and passed it down through his family. And where is I, that? Well, that's the question, another mystery. I interviewed uh, the descendant who lives on the the foreman's farm, uh, who said that, that that journal was passed down through the family. It disappeared about 1900, uh, the year 1900. And I asked him if anyone in the family had read it and what, what the family tradition was. And they said they had, and that according to that journal, that Lewis was killed by a known bandit on the Natchez Trace. He was robbed and his money Which, was stolen. I mean, if we apply Occam's razor. Yeah. I mean, the evidence of Lewis of, of Lewis's suicide is the allegation that he was manic and out of his mind. Right. Um, and then a letter that turns out to almost certainly be a forgery. Right. But nobody made those allegations while he was living. It was only after his death. You know, it's when you might hear someone, someone committed suicide and everyone says, oh, yeah, now I remember they, they seem depressed. Or, right. It's all after the fact. And this was, and the, the report of his manic behavior was, was really one traveling companion, right? Yeah, or the fact that they, they may have gone days and he didn't record anything in his journals. Okay, because he, he was a fairly um, prolific journaler. Right. And, and Thomas Jefferson did say in a letter to someone that he was, he was known for bouts of melancholy. They're not really sure what Jefferson meant by that. Okay. So if someone were to want to read, like, a good account of the Lewis and Clark uh, adventure. Yeah. What would you suggest? I would think Stephen Ambrose's on Donnie Curtis. That's the one I've read. Yeah, that's that's a modern masterpiece, I think. Yeah, because he he took it from the 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 journals. Yeah. Of the men. Yeah. Some historians think he had, he took a lot of liberty with it, but he tells a good story. Yeah. Well, it's an amazing story. Yeah. It's it's a story so amazing that I'm not sure that men with um, Gore-Tex and nylon and GPS could re could replicate it. Yeah, it I mean, was. It's, it's it's outrageous. Honestly, it's outrageous what they were able to do. Yeah, it was the the moonshot of its of its day. You know, they spent more than a year doing the preparations for oh, it. I, I thought it was more like two or three. Yeah. And Lewis spent personally spent months with experts in yeah. botany and zoology and, and, and developing new equipment. Right, he, collapsible so that he boats. could know what to document. Yeah, uh, and and then ended up discovering dozens of species of plants and birds and animals. And for the, I mean, like, sent them back. Yeah. Like, no one had ever seen these things. Right. Okay. So, Meriwether Lewis, more complicated than ever. Right. All right. So, along the way, 
along the way. As the self-appointed historian <laughs> and of, of the Natchez Trace. Well, in doing this research over the years, it, it was frustrating to me to, to read the official accounts of the Natchez Trace history and then to find all of these resources, the old documents and the journals, that didn't match the official accounts, the official story that we tell. And okay, so let's get the official. The official story is that the Natchez Trace was like the an, a hot, a, a, a then highway of commerce and yeah. and transportation uh, with Indians and bandits and difficulties. Yeah, and it's very primitive. Commerce and, and okay, all that. But really, it was a military highway, and it was and it ran. And just for people that aren't familiar, it ran from basically just outside Nashville yeah. to ran right through the middle of Franklin. Uh, down through Leaper's Fork, then down through Tennessee, Alabama, and on down through Mississippi to Natchez, Mississippi. All right, so it connects Nashville to Natchez. Yeah, um, and, it, and it was built to move troops to the, the Gulf Coast, to defend the Gulf Coast. But it was a secret at the time. Jefferson couldn't tell why he was building it. It was actually connected to the Lewis and Clark expedition because he built the road to be able to take over the Chickasaw and Choctaw land so that he could move settlers there, so they could defend the coast and, and evict, evict, evict the, yeah, and the then, Spanish or and the, French and the Indians, and then from he, New Orleans and everywhere in between. Yeah, and then he could take over the Mississippi River and then take over the West and make it a continental uh, U.S. Okay, so that's the official version. That's the official version. However, however, um, I began to find all these journals about uh, what the what was really going. They, they, the Jefferson story is not the official story. It's just this was just a primitive highway. The, what I found was that it was really this secret military highway. Okay. That was one of the first highways in the U.S. built for wagon travel for wheels. Yeah. Because um, I mean, the story that you get anecdotally is it was basically bandits preying on travelers. Right. right. Which is true. That happened. Right. But, but it's, it's incomplete. Right, because it really was a, a road built for wheels, and that's why... It was that, the original Eisenhower interstate system. Yeah, exactly, okay. of, of its time. And so it was much more developed than, than people have realized. Well, we were, as part of the Natchez Trace Parkway Association, we were getting ready for the bicentennial of the War of 1812, thinking, okay, how are we going to commemorate this, this highway that played such an important role in our nation's history? And we decided we would do some reenactments. We would go along the way, we would enact... Jackson marching his soldiers to Natchez, marching them back and all that. Which, okay, so my personal um, editorial here. Um, uh, if you think that Americans in, America's independence was accomplished at Yorktown, you're mistaken. Uh, because the British viewed that as a temporary setback. Right. And set about undermining us and playing a long game. Uh, and we're probably never really convinced that they weren't going to get it all back as soon as our little experiment collapsed. Right. Okay. Because they, they still had forts on the go. Oh, and coast. they were they were paying Indians to to be troublesome and right. and they had the northwest completely locked up with forts and 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 traffic and navigation and merchant uh, uh, merchant traffic and all that. I mean, like the idea a lot of people's superficial understanding is that, you know, we wanted they surrendered to Yorktown and left. Yeah. <laughs> that is not Remotely, what happened? They were still here, still here in huge numbers, yeah. um, and uh, they didn't really get the message until um, Jackson the comes second. along uh, and wins an enormous battle days or hours after the treaty that settled the war had been signed on the other side of the earth. 
Yeah, but he was defending the country because the right, British right, invasion. Right. Yeah. yeah. None, none of the armies knew yeah. that the that the politicians had settled the case. Right. It hadn't um, been, hadn't been ratified. Yet. Right. Right. But but it was done. I mean, the yeah. Treaty of Ghent was was con concluded yeah. before the Battle of New Orleans. That's right. All right. So I've interrupted your story. Yeah. So you're so you're going to reenact because of course the precursor to the Battle of New Orleans is Jackson gets nominated, put in command of an army that is to go and head off the the, uh, the invasion mm -hmm. or recapture of New Orleans, right? Right. Okay. So there we are. Right. And so there's this this <coughs> chapter in Jackson's life when he's first given this command and he marches the Tennessee volunteers down to Natchez. And all we all was really said about it is he got a letter telling him he was dismissed, he was to come back home. Jackson was disappointed and he marched his men back to back to Nashville. Before that, or after the battle? That's before. This is a year okay. and a half before. And that's when he earned the name Old Hickory. And that's all that was really said about it. And so we, and I remember as a boy going out to the trace and my history teacher telling me this story. And it's like, well, what happened? Well, we, we don't really know what happened. This is all we have. And so we got ready to reenact this, this period of Jackson's life. It's like, how do we do it? What information do we have? And I mentioned it to Rick Warwick, you know, the, the county historian, the walking encyclopedia yes. of Williams County history. If you history. have any questions about anything, yes, Rick, start with Rick. Rick can tell you. Uh, and one day Rick says, I've got a copy of an old journal that might be able to help you. And so he brought in this copy that he, he had made back in the 1970s. And when I saw it, I realized it was a copy of one of the journals from Andrew Jackson's uh, officers from the Battle of New Orleans that had never been published. And I said, Rick, where has this journal been? And he said, well, it's been in the trunk here in Franklin for 200 years. <laughs> the original? <laughs> the original, yes. So some attaches, some... A, an officer, officer attending yeah. Jackson's yes. camp um, writes this journal and it winds up just sitting back here in Franklin, Tennessee. Exactly. And so I said, well, you know, if this journal is here, then what else is out there? You know, it's hard to believe something about Andrew Jackson has not been found, not been published. So I started going into all these basements that you talked about up and down the Natchez Trace. So name a few. Uh, Natchez. Because I think that's, I mean, the, the book that you end up publishing yeah. is fascinating. But the process is mind-boggling. Yeah. So well, it's, it's you know Natchez. Natchez let me go down into their the bowels of their archives. I mean, just, you're talking about look, going back and opening a box yeah. and looking at a dusty old piece of paper that no one's looked at in right and decades. It's, and it's written in cursive writing with pen, and it's hard to decipher. Yeah. Um, but I started. And no finding, one even knows what it is. Yeah. Or, or where it is. I started finding these journals of of soldiers who went with Jackson on the, this first expedition down the Natchez Trace. So this is 1810, 1811? This is uh, 1812, Okay. Um, when the war was first declared. And then I started finding information about it, and, and I started giving talks up and down the Trace, and almost invariably after a talk, an older gentleman would come up and he would say, you know, my great, 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 great granddaddy, you know, was on that trip with Andrew Jackson. And I found out most of them was just made up, you know, that he had been it, told that it wasn't oral true. Oral history and it wasn't. Exactly. But then a few said, and I've got his letters. Do you want to see them? And I said, I sure do. I sure do. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, they began to add to the story and piece together uh, this incredible story. I had no idea what it was when I started. I just thought, here's a story of Jackson on this road. I'll tell the story of the Yeah, everybody knows where he started yeah. and where he got yeah. and what happened but when what he got happened, there. But they had no idea what was really going on and especially below the surface. And that took me to the National Archives and the Library of Congress. Now, I heard you when you first published this book give a presentation where you 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 tell this anecdote about 
having this conversation with this <laughs> archives librarian who says, oh, you, you're wrong. And you're like, oh, no, lady, <laughs> you're wrong. Well, I found an original journal from the same period there in the Library of Congress that was misidentified. And that's why no one had ever So it was like it cataloged this. as something yeah, and it's it not wasn't. somebody that. else's totally unrelated to what it was. But when you look at it. Yeah. And I pointed it out to the person who was the quote unquote expert of this period. And I said, you know, you've got this catalog misidentified and you know, oh, says, oh no, we are the Library of Congress. <laughs> you know, we know exactly where everything is. And, um, that's, I found that to be true several times. I pointed out to the Smithsonian, they had the flag that was given to the soldiers as this part of Jackson's March, and it was misidentified as well. And they were not happy to hear <laughs> that there was another interpretation on this flag <laughs> that they had. Yeah, people get invested in their relics, right? Yeah, they do, they do. Um, but what I found was this incredible story of Andrew Jackson's fight with the general in charge of the U.S. Army, General James Wilkinson. Who hated him. Who hated him. They hated each other. And well, Jackson, Jackson had a lot of enemies. He yeah. was, he was. Well, this one was worthwhile. Yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, this is a guy who was in power to, yeah. yeah. he was in charge of the U.S. Army, but he was actually a spy on the payroll of our enemy Spain. They, they called him Agent 13. And he was responsible for the death probably of General Anthony Wayne, several U.S. troops. His job was to screw up everything that was bad for Spain. Right, exactly. Okay. And he was in a position to do it. And, and Jackson was ordered to go down and serve under Wilkinson during this first expedition. So you can imagine Andrew Jackson being ordered to go down and take orders from this general he hates. Now at the time, no one knows he's a, a, a double agent. Oh, they suspect. Jackson suspects. He just okay. can't prove it. Okay. Uh, which involves Aaron Burr. He's gotten involved with Aaron Burr two years earlier because of this general. Because Burr, Burr goes on a crazy adventure. Yeah. Like Burr decides he's going to be the founder of a new nation in Texas That's or something, right? right? And, and he pulls Andrew Jackson into it so <laughs> okay. that Jackson is accused of being a traitor. Uh, but really, it's Wilkinson the whole time. He's pulling the strings for, for Burr to do this. And so here's Jackson's op opportunity to really get back at Wilkinson. He's ordered to go down and take uh, support Wilkinson in this, in this um, fight against the British. And he gets down to Natchez, 500 miles away from Tennessee, He's got 2,000 young Tennesseans, some of them as young as 16 years old, their first time away from home. They've never been soldiers. And Wilkinson sends Jackson an order that's a forgery from uh, supposedly the Secretary of War telling Jackson he's dismissed from service. Go home. Go home, but leave your boys behind and leave all their equipment behind. Turn it all over to your enemy, James Wilkinson. And you don't have to know much about Jackson to know yeah. he wasn't going to do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but his officers, you know, Thomas Hart Benton, he was from Franklin. Uh, the, his mother founded Leaper's Fort, was Jackson's aide-de-camp. And, and Benton, who later became U.S. Senator, really, I think, wanted to serve under Wilkinson. He wanted to work his way up through the Army. And he fought Jackson. He said, you know, if, if you don't obey this order, yeah. you'll face a firing squad. You know, Wilkinson will have you shot for... for um, disobeying the order for insurrection. And so Jackson had to decide, do I face a firing squad or do I allow these 200 young Tennessee boys to die? 2,000. 2,000. And so, um, you, know, you know, the decision Jackson made, he said, I, I led them into the field and I will at all risk and hazard lead them home. You know, whatever happens, happens, uh, I'll deal with it. And he started off up the Natchez Trace with these 2,000 Young Tennessee boys. On his way to New Orleans. Well, no, he's going back home. Okay, so he's willing to go home with them. 
He's not yeah. willing to abandon them and their equipment. Exactly. All right. Exactly. So but, he's like, he if has, I'm ordered to go home, they're coming with me. Yeah. Okay. But he has little money. He has little equipment. The boys are already getting sick. There are 150 of them that are Morale's got to be low because yeah. they've marched halfway to where they were supposed to go, only to be told go home. Exactly. They've accomplished nothing. They're not even sure if they can get back home because they've got to go through the, the Indian nations. The Indians are threatening to go to war with each other. And, and Jackson sends a, a rider to Nashville asking the governor to come to their aid, thinking I can get the boys about halfway back up the trace. Uh, the governor can meet me and give us wagons and food, and we'll get them on home. So he gets them about halfway up, about the Choc where the Choctaw Agency is, um, now originally Mississippi, and he's met with a rider with a message from the governor, and the governor says he has no authority to give Jackson any support. And Jackson thinks that Wilkinson and its enemy has somehow undermined everything. And so you can imagine Jackson, the rest of this trip going back home. Just steaming hot mad. What, thinking, all these boys may die. If I do get For back nothing. home, I've, I've, I've borrowed all this money to get the boys back. The government's not going to reimburse me. They'll send me to a poorhouse, or the army will shoot me. Right. That's what he's thinking he's looking at. And there's this great story, or this article in the Nashville newspaper, that when he gets back to Nashville, they have this ceremony in the public square where the courthouse is today. And they call it, quote unquote, a, a, a pleasant little ceremonial. And Jackson <laughs> has to stand there to dismiss his troops. All of his enemies are there in the audience. And here he's brought them back. They've accomplished nothing. You know, some of the boys have died. And everybody thinks this is it. We've finally, we've finally rid ourselves that, of and, Andrew Jackson. And that very morning, the Nashville newspaper reported that his enemy Wilkinson had just taken one of the forts on the Gulf Coast. That's the one Jackson wanted. He thought, this is it. It's over. Right. But what he didn't realize that through all of this was that he earned the boys' loyalty by not abandoning them right. 500 miles from home. He was their general. He had never really commanded a battle before, which is how generals earned the, the, right. uh, the loyalty of their men. So they were loyal to him when they got back to, to Nashville. And because of that, within six months, the Creeks attacked Fort, Creek Indians attacked Fort Mims, and Jackson called all these boys to come back to serve under him again. They all showed up because they, they had earned their loyalty. And when they showed up again, they were not green recruits. They were soldiers. They had, they had endured this very arduous trip up and down the, up and down the trace. And shortly after the Creek War, then he went into battle against the British and became the hero of New Orleans, and the, and the rest was history. So the book that you wrote, Hardened to Hickory, Hardened to Hickory is yeah. the story of this march halfway there and back. Yeah. And the, and the, the betrayal by Wilkinson and all that. Right. And it's, it's kind of the background information, too. It includes a history of the Natchez Trace being, being built through Franklin Jackson's role in moving the trace from Leaper's Fork up through the middle of Franklin, where he and John Overton happened to own some land that would be benefited <laughs> by the trace. And then the story of Aaron Burr coming to Nashville and, and Franklin and pulling Jackson into this scheme to pull Tennessee and Kentucky away from the Union. Yeah, because like for, for decades after the revolution had ended the first phase, there were constantly coalitions of states contemplating separating off and doing their own thing. Right. New, New, uh, New England in particular. Yeah. For for well into the 1800s. Yeah, so after, after Burr shot Hamilton, he thought his, his career in the East was over. They suggested he come to the West. Yeah. <laughs> um, but he could come West and pull all of these states away. He and his, his, Burr's, so, I mean, that's an amazing story, right? Like, yeah. like the vice president of the United States mm -hmm. shoots 
one of the other one of the founding fathers in New right. Jersey, and then goes on the lam, gets indicted, goes on the lam, hides out what in Georgia. Uh, well, he actually continued to serve as vice president. Yeah, but I mean, he didn't resign, but he took it, off, right? Yeah, but, he disappeared. Well, because at that time he was only uh, indicted in New York. Right. So he and leaves he, New York. As long as he stayed out of New York, he was fine <laughs> until his buddies fixed that. Yeah. And the indictments were resolved. Yeah. Uh, Hamilton's dead, but Burr's career is also dead. Yeah. I mean, because nobody, they're, like, they're, everybody had had their fill of Aaron Burr, and, and he was useful to no one. But anymore. only in the East. He right. was still very popular in the West. Right. And so he came back to Nashville. But I mean, you're talking about a Burr is a career lawyer and politician in New York, right? Who finds himself through a series. He was he and Hamilton had at least one thing in common. They were both very stubborn men, mm -hmm. and he winds up he winds up essentially uh, doing in his career by shooting Hamilton, and he has he has no friends left at that point. So he ends up. He ends up basically hightailing it out to the West yep. with some crazy idea of like founding his own country or something. Right. right. Which Wilkinson was behind him. And their idea was they would form this new country in New Orleans, which they thought would be the center of this brand new continent. They would they would encourage all of these states who were already unhappy with the United States anyway. Right. Because the West was getting short shrift. Right. Uh, they would, and the they West would, at the time would be, you know, what modern day Mississippi yeah, Alabama. Oh, yeah, yeah. They would pull them away from the Union. They would get British support or Spanish support, whoever would make help a deal them out. with someone. Yeah, and they would set up this new government, and they would become the most powerful government on the continent. And then eventually, they would pull the colonies away from it as well. Well, Jefferson got word that this was going on. He ordered Burr to be arrested, and Burr at that moment was coming down through Nashville, recruiting these men to go down the Mississippi River for this expedition down. Um, to Natchez, and they're de they're on the Mississippi River. They get almost to Natchez when when Burr is arrested, and he's um, brought into Natchez for trial. He's even more popular in Natchez than he is in Nashville, and so they held they they let him out on his own recognizance. He stays with the federal judge there, who's going to try him. <laughs> stays in his house, and they hold these balls in his honor. You know, here's the former vice president. Right. They, they're honoring him with these balls, and uh, Jefferson doesn't give up. So he gets the idea he's going to be. Uh, he has to face the consequences somehow, so he, he disguises himself in this old floppy hat and this old ragged coat, and he sets off on this horse across what is now Alabama, uh, but he doesn't change his boots, and he's wearing these very fine boots. That are a giveaway. That are a giveaway, and so he's going through southern Alabama, and there's another man from Franklin, Nicholas Perkins, who's then serving as a federal agent in that area. And he's at an inn, and Aaron Burr stops, and he spots this man in very ragged clothes with very fine boots. Yeah, his boots don't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, on this horse, and he says... Now, is all this in the book? Yeah. Okay. And, he's, and he says, this has <laughs> got to be Aaron Burr. Can't be anyone else. Yeah, and so he has Aaron Burr arrested. So Aaron Burr is arrested in Franklin. No, he's arrested down it, in Alabama. In Alabama, but, okay, but, the but man by a man from Franklin. From Franklin, yeah. And Perkins is then deputized to take Burr back to Washington, where to he's going to be tried, face trial. And... A lot of what Jefferson does to bring Burr back to Washington and try him, he has no authority to right. do. Right. It's completely extrajudicial. Yeah, it it's, is. It's, it's, it it's is. completely, and it, is, it is one of the first exercises of just naked claim for presidential power. That's right. And so, and Burr knows this because he's one of the best lawyers in the country <laughs> at the time. Right. And so there's a story there. They're going through South Carolina, which is the, there's a town uh, where Burr's daughter and son-in-law are very powerful. They're very popular there. 
And Burr rushes off his horse, rushes into a tavern. He says, I'm Aaron Burr, the former vice president of the United States, and I'm in mortal danger. Uh, they're trying to arrest me without cause. Help me. And Nicholas Perkins runs into the tavern, grabs Burr, pulls him back, puts him in chains, puts him on the horse, and, and takes him on up to Washington and, and buys a buggy so that he, they can put locks on it, keep Burr from doing the same thing again. <laughs> um, and then that, there's a whole other story, you know, when they get Burr back to, uh, toward Washington, they decide they can't get the, the favorable jury there, the only jury they can get that's likely to support is in Virginia. So they decide to try him in Richmond, Virginia. And they take him and they put him in prison there in Richmond, Virginia. And he's still very popular. And he's charged with sedition treason, and treason. And treason, yeah. Which is where we get our definition of treasons from this trial. Right. And John Marshall, who's the Supreme Court Justice, is appointed to be you know, in charge of this trial. And he has to decide what's the meaning of treason. Where did all of this take place? And it's a fascinating story about how, how Burr is tried you know, without, with very little evidence. Acquitted. What they eventually discover is that you know none of the none of the actions they caught they they alleged to be a crime took place in Virginia. Uh, they all took place somewhere else, <laughs> and the only reason they tried him was they, they thought they had a favorable jury. They were forum shopping. Yeah, exactly. So they had to let him go, but they still thought he was probably guilty. <laughs> History's crazy. It is. So uh, how long did it take to write the book? About seven years. And Let's do research and write it. Okay, and um, people can get that on Amazon. Amazon, you have or a Kindle version. Kindle version, they can buy it here locally at Landmark Booksellers or uh, at Carton Plantation. Okay, um, what is the thing about Andrew Jackson that uh, that you were surprised to learn, or that people today would be surprised to learn, or that you would want if like if they only know a little bit about Andrew Jackson? What's the thing that people should What's the takeaway for the for 2020? I think there are two different things there. One is the thing that surprises people most, and it's the fact that I, I tell people when I give a talk, is that a lot of American Indian leaders named their sons Andrew Jackson. And that surprises people today. And they say, well, it must have been before the removal, and this is true after the removal too. And that's a fascinating fact because it doesn't match the way Jackson is portrayed in the modern media. Yeah, because part of the legacy that you, I mean, like if you learn only a little of Jackson, it's Trail mm -hmm. of Tears, the right. eviction of countless, the, the eviction and, and the land grab um, of count, you know, the, the treaties that he, that he basically inflicted yeah, but upon they, they, the Indians. But they carry it further. They say, well, Jackson must have hated the Indians. He tried to kill every Indian. He tried to wipe out all the Indians. None of that's true. Um, but the fact that the, American Indian leaders respected Jackson enough to name their sons in his honor. Now, says they had a different perspective of him than we now, have today. To some extent, though, isn't it the case that their respect for Jackson was really as warrior? Like, mm -hmm. like, yeah, he he came and he he was good at that. Right. Um, so it wasn't that they were pals. And some of them were pals. Okay. Right? Yeah. Well, he he did he did play. I don't want to say play, but I mean he did. He did make allies and allegiances mm -hmm. that were shifting and convenient from time to time. Yeah, but um, he did also uh, wage very successful campaigns of of war against some of them. He did, and when he's when it's I success say successful, I mean yeah. measured by 
did he win the battles? Yeah, well, in the Creek Nation in particular, you know, and uh, that, that's the one he's probably criticized for the most because he wiped out a lot of the, a lot of the Creek Nation. Uh, one of the great experiences I had working on this part of the, the, the Trace uh, Bicentennial was I, I met some representatives of the Indian nations. And one man I made friendship with was Robert Thrower, who was the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Creek Nation, the one that Jackson decimated. And over this, over this period of time, you know, we discussed Jackson's legacy and the history and all of that. And it was a fascinating journey, you know, from when Robert started, he said, you know, I, I won't even use a $20 bill because it has Jackson on it. But by the time we finished, he says, I've got a totally different perspective now on Jackson because I understand why he did what he did. And the way Robert explained it to me is, he said, what's comparable to today is uh, someone would go into a village, you know, when, when they feel powerless, they're, try, they're trying to defend themselves and blow up a village. They commit an act of terrorism. And they're trying to show that they're more powerful than they really are. They're just saying, leave us alone. You know, there's gonna be a huge cost unless you, you know, stop trying to take over our land. He said, that's what the Creeks were trying to do to the settlers at the time. They would go into a village, they would massacre lots of women and children, and people would tell the horror stories. They were trying to portray themselves as being more powerful than they actually were uh, but that's why, that's why Jackson said we have to put an end to these acts of terrorism on Tennesseans. You know, we have to go and, and try to keep the, keep the creeks from doing this again. So there were reasons why Jackson did what he did. Yeah, I mean, you have to, you have to evaluate these things in the context of the, of the time that they were being done. Yeah. It's a little bit un I think it's a little bit unfair sometimes for us to look back and, and apply today's Situ or you know our our understanding today of what's good or bad to the struggle that the people then were involved in. Yeah, but Jackson has a you know certainly there's no excuse for holding anybody in slavery. You know it was accepted practice at the time. It's hard to justify. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, that I think that doesn't change over time. I don't think that you you get a pass right on owning a person. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, but parts of his story are, you know, remarkable. The fact that um, he lost most of his family or almost all of his family in the Revolutionary War. He was an orphan by age 14. He said he gave up to the British everything that he held dear as a child. They That's why he was so, I mean, when he had the chance to, to fight British people, he, he was, was absolutely, <laughs> he was absolutely a maniac. He was prime. But here's this young boy living by himself, having to raise himself on the frontier at a time when most adults don't survive. And he goes from that position with no money, you know, no future, to become the president of the United States. That's a remarkable story. Yeah. And along the way, he opened doors for people who were not born into power or wealth, who were not, didn't come from aristocratic families to do the same thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking back on the list, but like, he was, was Jackson like the first, first. non-aristocratic aristocratic yeah. uh, president. Yeah, like, and, I mean, and, Jacksonian democracy is kind of the, the term, but right. like, I mean, there's a reason that it's called that because prior to that, every president had been born uh, born into at least a, a family of good standing, right. um, if not a very wealthy family. Right, and it was um, expected if you ever wanted to become a general or a president, you could only do that if you, if you had been born into a certain family. Sufficiently high class. Exactly. Yeah. 
Um, and he shatters all that. And Jackson says it depends on a man's ability, not his, not his family, his upbringing. And he was now, I think my, I don't know if it's my favorite story, but like Jackson's interlude into Florida following, that's, that's after New Orleans. After New Orleans. He is, apparently, he's told, great job. The war with the, the British is now over. Come on home. And he's like, eh, one more thing. And yeah. he detours into Spanish-held Florida and absolutely routes everyone in his way and basically doesn't come home until the War of 1812 against the English and the British has now become the, uh, the recapture of Florida from the Spanish, right? Right, until he secured Florida for the United States. Which was a, which was a little bit of a diplomatic dust-up, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, his, even his own, even his fans had to sort of swallow hard and and uh and 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 say nice things about that right yeah. i mean but everybody was happy that he had he had secured florida for the well US. everyone yeah and, and, and i was and, like well now that it's done yeah and, but <laughs> from jackson's perspective you know as long as we have this area of land there next to what is now it the wasn't Southeast, safe yeah. it's not safe right the span i mean again people that the the, the superficial understanding of the revolution ending at yorktown and and then the next thing that happens that's of any consequence is like the Louisiana Purchase. Right. And then from there on out, it's kind of foregone conclusion that we're going to get to the West and the country's going to be what it is. Yeah. That's not what happened. Right. I mean, you still have pockets. Of we, we had, we had yeah. violent conflict with mm -hmm. the British and the Spanish right. on the continent for decades. Yeah. And their Indian proxies. Yeah. And so Jackson uh, leaves, he, if he'd, if he'd come home after the Battle of New Orleans, he would have been a hero and maybe ascended to the presidency anyway. Yeah. But when he, when he oh, oh, by the way, kicks the Spanish out of Florida, um, leaving the Spanish little option but to concede it, yeah. now he's... Hanging a Spanish... From his own ship, too, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like, oh, wasn't that... Now, the guy he hung from his own yardarm, wasn't that guy like a, 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 a Spanish sympathizer? Or, or like a governor appointed, yeah, he was yeah. like a was yeah. like a governor appointed by that, like a, he, he a proxy. Refused, he refused to give up a fort. Yeah. Yeah. And so Jackson goes and hangs him from his own shipyard yeah. arm. Yeah. Before heading home. Yeah. Um, but when and the and the president, you know, there's always been this question as to whether Jackson really had authority to do what he did. Jackson claimed that he did. Yeah, but. And well, but the but president they, didn't say, "Yeah, I told him to do well, that." Well, for public purposes, they had to say, "No, no, we didn't." No, 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 no. We no, we, yeah. we explicitly told him not yeah. to do that. Yeah, it could have been one of those one of those times, though, when if it all worked out. Yeah, it's one of those. Oh no, 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 no. Oh, that worked out well. Okay, exactly, good. Yeah. Yay, good for you. Because yeah. it could have gone really badly. Like, I mean, right. if he had failed, we would have had the Spanish rather heated. Exactly. Uh, and they, and like aggressive. Yeah. So, which is why they didn't. Um, for public purposes, they didn't want him to do that. He didn't have authority. But the question is, did he really have authority? Wink, wink. Yeah, exactly. And, but he did it. He did it. And then he, like Lewis, becomes the most famous celebrated yeah. man elevated to... The next, like, he becomes the next General George Washington, which is what he always wanted. Right. And, but not the pr he doesn't win, as I recall, he has to suffer through mm -hmm. John Quincy Adams right. winning the presidency... Right. And there's an anecdote about everybody's at John Quincy Adams' inaugural ball, and Jackson bursts in, and for a moment everybody thinks, "Oh shit, <laughs> he's going to shoot the joint up," and Jackson like bolts across the room and congratulates Adams. Right? 
Well, I think um, Jackson is there uh, behaving himself. And there's a story about uh, either Adams or one of his friends, you know, coming up to shake Jackson's hand. And he says, and he has a young woman who has his arm. And he says, you will excuse me for not extending a hand. It's, pri- it's presently taken. Yeah, okay. Uh, which is Jackson's way of saying, I'm not going to shake your hand. I'm not shaking your <laughs> hand. Right, because, at, I mean, he, he, he took it hard not winning yeah. the presidency when John Quincy Adams wins. Yeah. Then he runs the next time and wins. He wins. Um, and, uh, and the rest, as they say, is history. Right. So, um, okay. Here's a, here's a question that may or may not be fair. In general, as we sit here in 2020, what are we to do with these founding fathers and, and presidents, uh, how are we, what are we, what are we going to do? What reckoning can we reach with these men like Jefferson and, ja- and, and Washington and others who were slave owners and wrote documents as if, almost as if they weren't, um, and aspired to goals that they couldn't quite bring themselves to really bite off and do. What are we to do with men like Jackson who, but for Jackson, the country may not exist in the way that it does or even at all anymore. Um, and yet there are problematic parts of their, of their lives where that their, their decision-making and their beliefs would be completely unacceptable today. Right. What are we supposed to do to reckon what, you know, what do we do? I saw a quote today from uh, Winston Churchill, who said, great men are seldom good men, uh, which is probably true. And it's, it's can we reconcile ourselves to the fact that there have been times when imperfect men, and sometimes greatly imperfect men, have done great things despite their imperfections, and that we are benefiting from their courage and their bravery and their sacrifice today and we can say we owe them a debt for what they did for us, even though they were scoundrels. Can we can we come to that point? Because uh, I think that's that's the bargain we've made up to this point. Um, there may have been a time when we tried to make them all heroes. You know, yeah, I think that's the life. thing is that like we've we've they were not two dimensional mm-hmm. um, men. They were not. Um, uh, men with these lofty visions that they went to great lengths to execute completely and faithfully only. Right. Um, they were also slaveholders. They were also um, uh, sometimes brutally violent mm-hmm. um, and sometimes acted in their very own selfish interests. Right. I mean, a lot of what Jackson did, he did out of ambition. Mm-hmm. Um, that doesn't necessarily make it good or bad, but right. like, um, Most generals do that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it takes. I think it's. I think Churchill obviously was right that that there's a lot of that not. What was it? Not all great men are good men. Yeah. Yeah. Good, or think, good great men are seldom good men. Yeah, that's, that's probably true. That's, that's probably a, not an exact quote, but something, something like, like that. that yeah. So we we can't we can't whitewash and lionize their good stuff only, nor should we throw the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. There's a. There's a complicated, multiple, multi-layer uh, 
uh, analysis to be done here. Yeah, and it's like life. People are people are imperfect, and they always have been, and they always will be. Um, by putting them on a statue, do you say they're perfect people, or do you recognize that at one point in their life they did something heroic that we benefit from? That's that's the question I think we have to answer. Well, Tony, what do you do next? What's the next book? What's the next project? What's the next uh, well, endeavor? Someone suggested that I take a lot of this research that I've done over the years about the Natchez Trace and try to reach out to younger readers to encourage them to explore history. I think part of the reason we're having a lot of these discussions today that are getting off the rails are that we have a few generations that have really not delved into our history as much as uh, they, they should have. Um, so I'm writing a young adult historical fiction about the Natchez Trace. Okay. And I'm, I'm using stories that I've, I've found uh, and making up fictional characters to tell these stories and taking a young boy who's uh, traveling down the Natchez Trace with his mother and his, and his brother. She's a widow because one of the stories I found was like Franklin again. Nancy Benton came to Franklin as a widow with her sons and bought a farm on the edge of the American frontier, right at the edge of the Indian nation. Um, and imagine what kind of courage it took for a woman at that time to do that with her young sons. Um, yeah. Although you have to wonder, I mean, I'm sure she was quite courageous, but one has to wonder, um, what choice did she have? <laughs> like, Well, she moved here from North Carolina. She had okay. a, a farm right. in Hillsborough, North Carolina. They were apparently right. doing well. Any, any, any <clears throat> historical evidence of any reason that she would have been driven out of town or anything well, like that? I don't know that? about that. Any but, kind of, uh, scal any kind of scandal it. or anything like um, that? Every, anyway, every, so you're writing this. Yeah. So there's a, a historical, a, historical. a, a fiction based in history. Yeah. Of, okay. That tell tells the stories of these people who came to this area looking for opportunity. Uh, maybe they had been driven out of an area or maybe they were just looking for uh, a chance to own their own farm, you know, and make a future for themselves and they couldn't get back, back east. And Many of the people who traveled down this area on the Natchez Trace had no idea what they were getting into. They didn't know about the bandits. They didn't know about Indian warriors that were trying to kill people on the Trace, and they, they encounter all of this. And so what happens to them? And that's, that's what the story's about. All right. Any idea when that might be done? Uh, I'm hoping early next year. The, it, if, it, if it goes well, it'll be a series of books, and the first one's been written. It's at the editor right now. Uh, so I hope the first one comes okay. out next year. Okay, so you got one in the can. One, yeah, say. yeah, exactly. Okay. Then, um, all right, so, um, so working on that, and then I'm also continuing to work on Meriwether Lewis, and uh, we'll see what happens <laughs> with that one. You're gonna keep banging on the uh, I am yeah. on the uh, exhumation. Uh, the family is still interested in that. I, I don't know what will happen. So are you still that. going into basements and trying to dig up documents? Yeah, and I think I think there's more information out there. You know, if you ever hear a historian say. A certain thing never happened because we have no historical proof of it. Just wait. Right. It will turn up. Yeah. Okay. Well, Tony, um, how do people find you if they are interested in the your practice is is mostly in real estate, right? In real estate, uh, do some estate work, wills, okay. contracts. So if people need that, they can find you at at uh, 615-794-5555. Okay. In, um, in Franklin. And the name of the firm? Uh, King Turnbow Smith and Vanson. All right. And um, if people want the book, it's called Hardened, Hardened to Hickory. Hardened to Hickory. Yep. It's the story of Andrew Jackson's first military command. First military command. Mm -hmm. uh, what uh, and the mysteries and, and right. intrigue surrounding it. 
Um, and um, are you still doing speaking engagements and that I, kind of thing? Not during the COVID uh, shutdown, unfortunately. Okay, all right. But, but, but I, did, I did about 80 last year. Was, okay, well, maybe out of this, somebody will say, oh, I've got this old book in my, yeah. my grandpa gave me this old diary and maybe something will turn up you and solve know. another mystery. You never know. All right, well, thank you for doing this, Tony. It's been a pleasure, thank you. All right. I told you that was gonna be cool. The book is Hardened to Hickory by Tony Turnbow. If you'd like to get it, you can get it on Amazon. It's also available as a Kindle version, and I recommend it. What's amazing to me about the story that Tony just told us is that here we are 200 years removed from these events, and we're still finding out facts. We're still finding documents, uh, and we're still, you know, learning what the history really was. I think that's amazing. Tony's done a great job with that. I encourage you to get the book and read it. Uh, and uh, this is Dana McClendon. This has been Ready for Trial. If you like what I'm doing, please leave a good review. Uh, put some five stars on that thing. Follow me on all the social media. Uh, if you would like to be a guest, if you think that would be interesting, or if you know someone that should be a guest, let me know. Uh, I'm easy to find. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Dana McClendon, Ready for Trial. <laughs>